bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 30th, 2010. The Tax Credit Tuesday podcast is presented by Novogratik & Company, LLP, a national accounting and consulting firm. Check us out on the web at www.novaco.com. Today, I'll open the podcast with a brief congressional update. Then, I'll turn to low-income housing tax credit news. I'll share information about a Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, pilot program that's intended to speed up the processing of loans to owners of low-income housing tax credit properties. Then, I'll summarize a recent mediation agreement reached by the Montana Board of Housing staff and Travoy, Inc. over the state's qualified allocation plan. Also, in housing-related news, the Louisiana Housing Finance Agency released a state housing needs assessment that reveals a significant need for affordable housing in the state. In our New Market Tax Credit discussion, I'll summarize a report from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco that explores the relationship between community development financial institutions and transit-oriented development. And then in Renewable Energy Matters, we'll examine information that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has collected about states' energy generation and efficiency standards. And finally, in Historic Tax Credit News, we'll explore a bill that legislators in New Jersey passed just last week that could make New Jersey the 32nd state in the nation to offer a historic rehabilitation tax credit. If you're ready, let's get started. This week, Congress returns from their Thanksgiving recess to continue their lame duck session. Today, Tuesday, in what some are calling the Slurpee Summit, the President and the leaders of both parties in the House and the Senate are meeting to discuss legislative matters for the lame duck session. High on the list of action items will be the extension of the 2001-2003 tax cuts. I'll tweet as news from the summit warrants. Also today, as well as tomorrow, the Fiscal Reform and Deficit Reduction Committee is meeting. December 1st is the deadline for the report. However, the Commission is unlikely to be able to issue a report that can garner the required 14 of 18 votes. In fact, Senator Lindsey Graham said on Sunday, and I quote, the commission is probably dead. Also today, extended unemployment insurance expires. Furthermore, government funding in general expires on Friday, December 3rd, unless the House and Senate either pass all the appropriations bills or pass a continuing resolution, and the president was willing to sign either of those two. I don't think there's much expectation that there will be a shutdown of the government. I think there is an expectation that there will be a continuing resolution that sort of kicks the can down the road in terms of government funding until early next year. On the tax front, beyond the 2001-2003 tax cuts, we still await extenders, particularly for our listeners, the Section 1602 LHCC cash grant program and extension of the new market tax credit. 
We're also awaiting extension of the AMT patch, adjustments to the estate tax, and, of importance to a lot of our listeners, extension of the Section 1603 Renewable Energy Cash Grant Program. So stay tuned and follow me on Twitter. It'll be an exciting and interesting week, and I'll be providing a similar update on Thursday morning this week at the Novogratz Developers Tax Credit Conference in Las Vegas. There's still time to attend, so if you're interested, just go to www.novoco.com events. In local housing tax credit news, the Multifamily Executive Magazine reported on November 10th that the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, will implement a pilot program that expedites the processing of tax credit loans to owners and developers of low-income housing tax credit transactions. The program will be modeled after the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD's, LEAN program that's used for healthcare transactions. The FHA will form regional tax credit execution teams, which include an appraiser, underwriter, and credit person. This will streamline the debt financing process. Now, initially, only 9% low-income housing tax credit transactions will be eligible for the program. The program will also only be available in certain markets with certain lenders. Chris Tawa, Senior Advisor in HUD's Office of Multifamily Housing Programs, told the Multifamily Executive Magazine that the goal of the pilot program is to get staff out of the middle of transactions and move the transactions to a final closing quicker. Tune in to future podcasts for more information about this new program. Our next piece of LHTC news comes from the state of Montana. In September, Travoy Inc., a housing and economic development financing firm that works with Native American communities, reached an agreement through mediation with Montana Board of Housing staff and the board chair. The agreement sprung out of a 2008 lawsuit filed by Travoy in response to what it saw as inequalities in the state's qualified allocation plan. Travoy asserted that scoring for Native American applications was inconsistent and that a waiting period had a negative effect on Native American communities. Before bringing its suit, Travoy studied LIHTC applications that were submitted during the 2007 and 2008 funding rounds. The company decided that scoring inconsistencies were a result of the subjective scoring of community support letters and the lower value placed on soft debt. Additionally, Travoy argued that the Qualified Allocation Plan's requirement that an LIHTC property be successfully managed for one year before a first-time developer could receive a second allocation of low-income housing tax credits resulted in, effectively, a three-year no-build period for tribes. According to Gerald Watney, one of the Board of Housing staff members that was named in the suit, the state agency's research indicated that developments on Indian reservations are funded at a higher rate than those off-reservations. To resolve the litigation, however, the Board of Housing staff agreed to mediation. As a result of the mediation session, the two parties agreed that the Housing Finance Agency would hire an independent third-party professional to review the state's QAP and make recommendations for improving the document, paying particular attention to tribal interests. On September 17th, the Board of Housing staff sent a memo to board members proposing that the Board of Housing amend the 2011 Qualified Allocation Plan, QAP, to include a shorter waiting period and a fewer number of community support points. The memo encouraged the board to accept the changes. 
The Board of Housing will consider other changes for the 2012 QAP as well. A more in-depth discussion of the case and the issues surrounding it can be found in the December issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. In state affordable housing news, the Louisiana Housing Finance Agency, LHFA, last week released the results of a statewide housing needs assessment. LHFA commissioned the study to determine Louisiana's housing situation. The report provides a summary of the rebuilding process post-Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, Gustav, and Ike. The study quantified housing needs based on data published by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The study found an estimated 386,000 low-income households in Louisiana need affordable housing. The overall percentage of low-income households with problems has risen since 2000 from just under 28% to nearly 30%. On the tax credit front, researchers found that the state has deployed more than $2 billion in low-income housing tax credit value. Now, as of September, the state had approximately 4,000 low-income housing tax credit units that had not yet closed, over 3,100 units that had closed, over 4,600 units under construction, and over 15,300 units placed in service. The report also showed that recently developed low-income housing tax credit properties were maintaining occupancy rates above 92%. The study suggested the following goals for LHFA to best meet the state's housing needs. And these are goals that could apply to many states. Invest in areas slated for significant job growth, particularly in rural areas with limited housing stock. Another goal, promote new housing products that meet the needs of smaller households, non-family households, and the growing elderly population. Another goal would be target resources to areas where there is a documented housing need, according to the most recent HUD survey data. Also, the report emphasized a goal to use public-private partnerships and multiple funding sources to build projects that target extremely low-income households. Also, to work with local communities to build affordable housing in blighted structures or lots. To find the appropriate balance of home ownership and rentals. And to track the performance of current housing markets and occupancy statistics in an ongoing manner. The Housing Finance Agency hopes that this study will help state and city officials move forward with housing production in areas where it's most needed. The agency also plans to use the results of the study to further garner support for legislation that would make the Gulf Opportunity Zone tax credits eligible for the Section 1602 Tax Credit Exchange Program. The entire assessment which includes case studies of successful long-housing tax credit developments, can be found online at the Louisiana Housing Finance Agency's website. In new market tax credit news, we actually turn to a study about CDFIs and transit-oriented developments. In October, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco published the report entitled CDFIs and Transit-Oriented Development. The report was prepared by the Center for Transit-Oriented Development, and it was completed for the Low Income Investment Fund. The report analyzes the involvement of Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFIs, in transit-oriented developments. The report also suggests ways that they can promote equitable development near transit facilities. 
The report says that while CDFIs have long provided services and other assistance to promote economic opportunities for low- and moderate-income individuals, their investments in transit-oriented development have been limited. Most CDFIs have provided capital and technical assistance to individual housing and mixed-use developments, but they can offer more in terms of technical experience, creative financing, and advocacy, according to the report. The report finds that, in general, CDFIs are involved in individual developments, CDFIs target investments to low- and moderate-income communities, but miss opportunities to invest in affordable and mixed-income housing near transit in higher-income neighborhoods, that transit-oriented developments do not attract private investors because of the 10- to 20-year wait on a return on investment, that CDFIs have a difficult time financing infrastructure and amenities because of the financing tools available to them, or the lack of financing tools available to them, and CDFIs need to partner with community-based organizations and community development corporations. The report identifies four ways that CDFIs can increase their role in transit-oriented development. It recommends that CDFIs, one, provide short-term, unconventional financing for construction, rehabilitation, and preservation of affordable housing properties, two, create additional regional structured funds to finance transit-oriented development properties, three, engage with metropolitan planning organizations in regional transit-oriented development planning, and four, inform federal policymakers in the following ways. Establish a transit-oriented development requirement for long-term tax credit and new market tax credit allocations, steer credit towards transit areas, and explore new federal financing sources for child care facilities. Now, the report also identified areas for CDFIs to explore for future investing. Notably, CDFIs could provide financing to revenue-generating neighborhood infrastructure projects, such as public parking garages and infrastructure. They could provide assistance to metropolitan planning organizations and local governments in developing sound underwriting standards to evaluate grants and loans that finance transit-oriented development infrastructure and projects. CDFIs could advise metropolitan planning organizations in the formation of regional infrastructure banks, as well as revolving loan funds targeted for transit-oriented development infrastructure investments. And CDFIs could disseminate best practices to educate public policymakers about ways to include services like quality, early care, education, health care as components of equitable transit-oriented development the Center for Transit-Oriented Development considers the report to be a first step in increasing CDFI's involvement in transit-oriented development. The entire report can be found at the New Market Tax Credit Resource Center. Simply click on Reports and Research, and you'll find that under the Resources tab. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, last October, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission released information about states' energy generation and efficiency standards. The Commission found that 32 states have either energy efficiency resource standards, pending energy efficiency resource standards, or energy efficiency goals. Now, of those 32 states, 24 have energy efficiency resource standards, and 20 of those states include their energy efficiency standards as part of their energy or renewable energy portfolio standards or renewable energy goals. 
15 of those 24 states established or expanded their energy efficiency resource standards or energy efficiency goals between 2009 and 2010. Four states out of the 32 had pending energy efficiency resource standards legislation. That's pending as of early September. And in the balance, four other states had informal energy efficiency goals. The report also noted that 29 states plus Washington, D.C. have renewable mandates, 16 of which, including Washington, D.C., have final targets of more than a 20% reduction in the amount of energy expended. The report also included information about the growth of the solar photovoltaic and wind energy markets. Annual solar additions rose to more than 100 megawatts in 2006 after the investment tax credit was extended to solar projects by the Energy Policy Act of 2005. And in the last few years, there have been several federal solar incentives and policies that have further encouraged production. These policies included the extension of the solar investment tax credit to 2016, the creation of the Section 1603 cash exchange program, and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's position that distributed solar generation does not, that's right, does not constitute wholesale energy sales. States have also introduced financial incentives to encourage solar energy production. There, we find that 24 states in Washington, D.C. offer direct cash incentives for solar. 21 states in Washington, D.C. have rebate programs. 132 utilities offer rebates for solar installations. The report notes that in 2009, five states and two municipal utilities created or enhanced feed-in tariffs. And over 40 states, namely 42 states, plus Washington, D.C., have net metering policies that allow customers to offset the electricity they purchase from the utility. As for wind energy, the report notes that during the three times that the federal production tax credit has lapsed for wind, wind energy production declined in the subsequent years. The Commission also reports that the steady renewal of the production tax credit has led to foreign turbine, tower, and component manufacturers to open U.S. facilities. In 2008, 30 facilities were announced, 10 opened, and 18 existing facilities expanded. The entire report can be found at the Novogratz Renewable Energy Tax Credit Resource Center. Simply go to the Research Center's page under the Resources tab. Turning to historic tax credit news, the New Jersey Heritage Development Coalition is reporting that the New Jersey Assembly has passed a bill, A1851, entitled the Historic Property Reinvestment Act. The bill passed by a vote of 60 to 13. The Historic Property Reinvestment Act provides tax credits for the cost of rehabilitating historic properties in New Jersey. The bill creates two tax credits for up to 25% of a taxpayer's outlay for rehabilitating historic structures. There's a homeowner tax credit, and it's capped at $25,000 per property during a 10-year period, and the credit applies against gross income tax liabilities. A business tax credit is also created. It's not capped, and it applies against both corporation business tax as well as insurance premiums tax. The bill allows the taxpayer to sell the credit through a tax credit transfer certificate program, 
And the bill directs the State Historic Preservation Officer and the Director of the Division of Taxation to establish such a procedure. Now, to qualify for the credit, the property must meet certain qualifications. One, it must be individually listed or located in the district listed on the National Register of Historic Places or the, National Jer- or the New Jersey Register of Historic Places or be designated by the Pinelands Commission as a historic resource of significance. Number two, it must be individually identified or located in a district composed of properties identified for protection as a significant resource in accordance with criteria established by the appropriate municipality and approved by the State Historic Preservation Officer. Now, for the homeowner tax credit, the third requirement is that a homeowner must occupy the property. Further, they must expend no more than 60% of the renovation costs on interior renovations, and renovation costs must equal at least 50% of the assessed property value. And then third, for the business tax credit, a business must, during a 24- or 60-month period, have eligible rehab expenditures of the greater of $5,000 of the property's adjusted basis. Additionally, Bill A-1851 provides that the cumulative amount of tax credits approved cannot exceed $15 million in 2012, $25 million in fiscal year 2013, $40 million in 2014, and then $50 million in fiscal year 2015 and thereafter. The bill also says that at least 65% of the credits must go to businesses and 25% to homeowners. By December 31, 2015, the State Historic Preservation Officer is required to submit a detailed report about the credits to the governor and to the legislature. The New Jersey State Senate and the governor must also approve the bill before it could become law. The next step for the legislation is for the New Jersey Senate's State Government Tourism, Gaming, and Historic Preservation Committee to hear the Senate Companion Bill S-659. As of this recording, the committee had not yet taken up the bill. The entire text of the Assembly Bill 1851 and Senate Bill 659 can be found on the State Legislation page at the Novogratic Resource Center www.historictaxcredits.com Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. It's going to be a busy week in Congress, so I encourage you to go on to twitter.com and register for my tweets. I'll also be speaking at our Las Vegas Affordable Housing Tax Credit Conference on Thursday morning. It's not too late to register. Simply go to www.novaco.com slash events. And please... Join me again next week for another edition of Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.